the curse of the devil. Exorcism, a sacrifice. Blessing or bestiality. The curse of the devil. Satan in control of the body and the mind. My love will destroy the creation. I swear that you will find Welcome back to the Nashi Cast. I am Rod Barnett, and along with my co-host, Mr. Troy Gwynn. Hello. <laughs> We're terrible. We're so used to doing this in the same room that when I gesture to him and he can't see it, somehow it's just, it causes a lag. It's very strange. Uh, <laughs> Troy and I are here tonight to talk to uh, yet another Nashy fan, someone we haven't spoken to on the podcast before, but uh, certainly spoken to in uh, very public places where we've been uh, handing him money uh, because he has blackmail material on us. No, no, that's not it. We're buying things from him. Tonight, we're talking to Mr. John Kitley. John, how you doing, man? I'm good. Glad to be here. Uh, you, I have gotten to know over the years because you seem to pop up at most conventions that I go to selling books and i have an intense weakness for books especially genre books books about the genre about film about uh well actors and strange things to do with horror movie stars and various and sundry genre overlooked books and things of that nature and you tend to sell a good number of those and so you have pocketed a bit of my money over the years i do when try did you st- <laughs> when did you start selling books at conventions um, when the VHS market, uh, died out before it blew up, I, I made the mm-hmm. smart decision to get rid of them, you know, before they were, I could have retired by now. Mm-hmm. Um, when you couldn't give them away. Um, yeah. and I, I knew I, that was going away at the time. So I wanted to do something else. And I always had a few books on my table, but I figured, you know what? I'm a, like you, Rod, I'm a huge book nut. So I figured, why not sell something that nobody else is really dealing in? And it's something that I'm really passionate about. Um, and I know my market is a little smaller because, hey, you got to find people that know how to read. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, which just seems to be a little tougher these days. But yeah. it's something yeah. that I re- that I really like to do. And I, and I love passing that information off to younger fans or older fans or younger horror fans that they can learn more about the genre and the people behind them and stuff, because then you, you, you just always appreciate everything a little bit more. uh, This is true. I I don't know how many books I've bought from you, but I know that it's probably more than it's somewhere between five and 15. I'll be honest. I don't keep track of exactly where I buy all of my obsessive collectibles from. And in my mind, uh, genre reference books have a tendency to fall into that category. But the thing is you, decided that uh, perhaps there was not enough on your shelves, and so you decided to publish a book of your own. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it took me about five years to get it done, and probably half of that was trying to, to figure out what exactly it was going to be. Um, hmm. 
as far as the concept and 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 it's one of those things that you're going are people really going to want to read this because it's it's kind of half autobiographical and half me just preaching about the horror genre and uh i just figured the only way i'm going to find out is if i get it out there in hopes to connect with other fans that maybe don't have the um friend base that i have now uh because when i was growing up as a horror fan i didn't have anybody that was obsessive like i was so um you always want to have that connection uh so yeah Yeah, anything to foster community of course yeah exactly because there's nothing worse than seeing something that just blew you away and not being able to talk to anybody about it Mm -hmm. so i got it done and, and published in 2019 right before the pandemic hit so that was that was pretty good timing um but sales have been pretty good and and i have gotten a lot of responses from people that that connect with it exactly how i i how i wanted it to be received so that was cool well sure a big part of the fun for me is i mean like you know i mean i knew that i knew as soon as i saw like i mean you were basically born a year before i was and so i knew that reading it i would find a lot of uh, parallel uh, stuff, you know, between, you know, just based on the time at the, t- what age you are when certain things hit, you know, on television mm-hmm. and movies. And, and that's been a lot of fun. I mean, yeah, it's called discover the horror folks. Uh, we should go ahead and say that title there. It's called discover the horror by John Kitley. Uh, yeah, man. Good, really fun reading. Uh, just really enjoying it. And, uh, oh, cool. It, yeah. And, uh, and yeah. And, and as I suspected, you know, again, yeah, you, I'm sure, you know, saw a lot of the same shows and, and movies. And it's funny cause, uh, it kind of answered my question. You know, a lot of times when we have new people on the show, I like to ask them like, kind of like what were the key moments or key things that kind of creeped them out when they were little that, you know, there's always, I always kind of feel like there's that place in a time in a person's life when they're real little that, you know, young, they're good that they see something they may be too young, probably were a little too young to have seen or something that disturbs them, scares them. But there's then there's that point where the people who, don't find that pleasant and don't want to come back to it or the people that kind of go through the rest of life, the people you run into that just tell, you know, yeah, I don't do the horror movies, you know, and there's a lot of those out there or the people who find that kind of fun, kind of fascinating that we were moved that way, disturbed that way and chilled that way. And we want to come back for more. And so I always kind of ask them, what are some, what are the key moments that, that you remember? And I know from your, from your book, it was interesting to me that it was, it looked to me like it was a few TV shows. Uh, and one of the one first ones you mentioned was ghost, uh, with Sebastian Cabot hosting. Ghost story. Yeah. Yeah. Ghost story, yeah. And, and the funny thing is, is I, I have vivid memories of sitting on our floor in front of the TV, watching these episodes and mm-hmm. like the concrete captain and the one with Jason Robards, um, the, de- the dead we leave behind. And then for the longest time, I didn't, I remembered them, but I didn't know what they were from. Mm-hmm. So you had these disjointed memories of different things. And then mm-hmm. going back to horror reference books, I got a film guide and I started reading through it. And they started talking about this TV series. And they mentioned a couple of the the episodes, like the Death Head Moth with uh, Janet Lee. Mm-hmm. And it's like, holy crap, that's, that's what I remember. Mm-hmm. So then... And, it started that whole quest of I have to find this entire series. Um, so then I was paying stupid amount of monies for really shabby looking bootlegs, but just to be able to see them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and thankfully now they're all released on DVD and, and I think just blue her DVD. I don't think they've made the, the move yeah, to Blu-ray I yet. I don't think they have either, but well, it was really just one, I guess, 
it was what one season that was kind of the best one, right? The first one that had Sebastian Cabot hosting, I think, uh, right by the second season, it changed its, did it change its title and and uh, yeah, it changed yeah, to Circle yeah. of Fear and they dropped Cabot. Um, there's a few still good ones in that in the Circle of Fear series, but I mean, they're overall, and I I just kind of lump them all together because I think some of the stories are are really creepy. The the one with John Aston who plays a security guard at a basically kind of like Universal Studios where they where they created all these monsters that I believe if I remember correctly he used to be in them but the ghosts of these monsters come back and haunt the studio mm. and uh, he has to God, I don't even want to say it, it'll make me shiver but he has <laughs> to burn the film to, oh, wow. to get rid of the monsters so oh, wow. but yeah those those were childhood favorites and between that and Night Stalker and Night Gallery yeah um, I, that's luckily at that time because we didn't have a movie theater where I grew up. The set, the early seventies, was the perfect place to watch horror on TV. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it it was a great time. Yeah, yeah. Well, the uh, the the thing the thing that I think I mean you capture with, with this book you capture a lot of things that even though uh, I'm a little younger than you two. <clears throat> yes, thank you for pointing uh, that. Uh, there's still a number of touchstone moments uh, throughout the book where I could heavily, heavily, heavily identify. And I think your your subtitle, I mean, yeah, it's Discover the Horror, but One Man's 50-Year Quest for Monsters, Maniacs, and the Meaning of It All, that, that really kind of defines a lot of us because the, the, the way in which uh, you handle it is really great in the book because it, it is that, that tricky thing where by being so specific, it becomes very general. As soon as you have someone of the tribe actually reading those pages, they know exactly what you're talking about. They may not have had that exact experience, but they've had something very, very close. And it's because we have all these touchstones, all these television shows and all these movies and all these different comic books and novels, all these different pieces of genre fiction that we've enjoyed in different ways over the years. Yeah, we come to them in different ways in different times and from different perspectives, but you always circle back to those things and those are just, they're, they're fodder for endless conversations. Oh yeah. I, I, I yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's, so, there, in other words, it's, it's, it's one of those great community building things because you can start a conversation that almost anybody who's interested in this stuff can jump into the middle of depending on whether or not they're from somewhere between the ages of say 30 and 70. And it's going to work. Right. You know? And I, and I think w- one of the, the concepts that I wanted to do is I wanted to make the writing more like a conversation and mm-hmm. coming mm-hmm. from a fan's point of view. And, and I've always said, we're all on the same road as a, as a horror fan. Some of us have been on it longer, mm-hmm. but it's, but it's not, it's not a race and it's not right. well you know and trust me back in my younger days i was a little bit more arrogant and and what you haven't seen this movie what are you an idiot <laughs> but then you learn that's going to turn off the conversation and they're not going to listen yeah so yeah. when you take it more of a like when someone tells me you know what i've never seen uh an argento film and i'm and i go i'm so envious because you get to watch this stuff for the first time. I can't. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. if, if you, I try to leave it or I try to write it that way where it opens up, even if like to your point, Rod, it's not, we're not the same age, but we have the same similar effects that have happened. 
that even though it's a different time period, you're still going to understand what I'm talking about. And good work will kind of reverberate regardless of what, you know, what generation you're a part of. If you're keyed into those kinds of stories, you know, the Night Stalker is going to have some effect on you one way or another. Right. You know, uh, it, you know it, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, the Bride of Frankenstein is going to have some kind of effect on you regardless of, you know, the, the, the surrounding consumerist world that it uh, that you're catching it in the middle of it doesn't really right. matter so, some of these works kind of have a similar effect regardless of any other outside force I, I know that one of the one of the things that uh, I wanted <laughs> I wanted to make sure you knew and I think I've talked about this before is I just mentioned uh, in passing to you uh, one day that uh, you John were the person who uh, sold me my first Paul Nashy t-shirt mm-hmm. what oh uh, was I I'll be damned. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the the the, the Marco de Ombre uh, Lobo, the 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 black and yeah, white. Okay. It was the black T-shirt with the with the white printing yep. on it. And uh, they, well, it wasn't the last. Don't get me wrong, but the uh, <laughs> I, st- I still wear that T-shirt to this day. And it was it was when I bought that. It, it, there there was a there was a suspicion when I bought it. I was I was like, oh man, I can't believe I'm getting my hands on this. This is incredible. And then realizing hours later, circling back to the table and, and going through books, realizing, oh wait a minute, no no no, this isn't this isn't just some crass you know there's some crass businessman. F- 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 Picking my pocket because he's found a way to to accidentally have something that I love. No, he loves this as well, and uh, that that was one of the moments where I realized, oh, oh, so there are more of us out here, and some of them actually can be in the same room as me because Troy and I we 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 spent years thinking that you know we were going to be the only two that we knew that were really really into Paul Nashy and um, when we finally did start to to find more and more people who were really interested you know thank goodness i mean you know we we started that we started the podcast and just kind of kept doing the same thing forever until people came to us i thought but there's a lot of people out there interested in this and that's kind of why we wanted to have you on here. We wanted to pick your brains about your journey with Paul Nashie, how you came to him. You talk about it in the book, but the, the, the pell-mell way in which the, we'll probably end up talking about it may, uh, may make it more or less intelligible to anybody who doesn't have the book. In well, I, so I gotta say that, uh, my first, uh, my first key bit of merchandise I bought from uh, Kitley's Crypt, John Kitley's store there, is uh, uh, was at Monster Bash. Uh, he's also is has a tendency to have some really excellent looking pillows on his uh, that are all made up of monster movie posters. And I bought the uh, first time I met John, he was uh, selling a Paul Nash a Paul Nashy pillow that was it's got all these Paul Nashy posters on it. In fact, I'm looking at it right now. I still have that. And then uh, this past Monster Bash, <laughs> I bought one from a younger brother that uh, was all George Romero posters, but how did that, how those pillow, how'd you get in the pillow business there? How did those come about? When, uh, when my wife, oh, that sounds like really, that sounds <laughs> really related. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. But now it's going to sound weirder because I'm going to bring in my wife into this. Um, <laughs> when she started coming to shows with me, she, she wanted to do something other than just sit there. And uh, she's really good at crafts and, and sewing and stuff. So we thought of this thing of coming up with uh, tote bags and pillows, but using poster art uh, for the patterns. And she found a place where you could we could design the artwork, send it to a place that prints the material. Mm-hmm. And then she'll make tote bags, pillows or, or whatever out of it. 
and then of course you're immediately going, well, got to have a Paul Nashy one. Yeah, of course. And that was one of the first ones we did. And, and again, it's not like, oh my God, these are going to fly off the table. Mm-hmm. It's hell yeah. I'm going to have a Paul Nashy print, whether yeah. it's a pill or yeah. toe bag or something. Cause that's what I would buy. Yeah. Um, and I, I remember being at one show and a guy was buying it. Who's a huge, um, Spanish horror fan. And he's like, y- you don't have anyone with a blind debt on it, do you? And immediately I went, I will next at the next show. Cause <laughs> yeah. again, that's a great idea. And sure. Shit. We had a blind dead print for the next one. So cool. Cool. it gives my wife something to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I love the fact, um, the artwork grabs people. And like you said, Troy, you're going, Holy crap, this guy's actually got a Paul Nashy pillow. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's, and again, it's stuff that I know I could do other titles that might be more commercial, more profitable, but I'm going to, I'm going to have stuff on my table that I would buy that yeah. I, that I really believe in. Yeah. Cool. Well, just out of curiosity, to get the ball rolling here, what was the first Paul Nashy encounter you had in your life? And I think I may have said that wrong, too. <laughs> uh, my, my first, see, I knew of him, but I didn't know, I hadn't seen him, any of his movies. Um, mm-hmm. But I, from reference books and stuff, you just see, you keep seeing that name pop up occasionally. Um, but a good friend of mine that I traded movies with all the time was a huge Nashy fan. His name's John Stone, and we have the first, the same first name, both spelled J-O-N. So we had that immediate connection, and I'm like, I keep hearing about this Nashy guy, and I know you're a fan. Can you send me what you think of his best movie, his best film is? And of course, like any film fan or even Nashy fan, he sends me two films because mm-hmm. he can't narrow it down to one. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. And it was Horror Rises from the Tomb and Night of the Werewolf. Yeah. And yeah. I, I immediately watched Horror Rises from the Tomb, and it's literally like the angels are singing. <laughs> the, you know, the sky <laughs> opens up. Uh-huh. And now I was always a huge Hammer fan, and you watch the Nashi film or Horror Rises from the Tomb, and it's like a Hammer film except on crack. Yeah. Because the, <laughs> yeah. the gore yeah. is more over the top, the nudity, uh-huh. um, and especially with Horror Rises from the Tomb, it's. And this is before I really knew anything about him or the, even the, the concept or whatever that went into the making of this. But you watch that film and it's like, God damn, it's batshit crazy. There's mm. everything yeah. thrown in here. Yeah. But it's really good. Yeah. So th- to this day, that still remains my all time favorite Nashi film, no matter what. Yeah. Well, when um, you said he sent you two films, I, I could almost guess that I just almost knew it had to be Horror Rises from the Tomb was going to be the first one. Because that's just that one is just so high on just about everybody's list. The second film, yeah. there could have been a lot of other candidates, but it seems like Horror Rises from the Tomb is just is kind of the the you know one that just seems to always be up the top of, of for everybody. And and yeah, it's oh, one yeah. of mine too. Yeah, if you want to, if you yeah, if you want to turn somebody into a fan, yeah. I, this is something Troy and I've talked about many many times. You want to turn somebody into a Paul Nashy fan, just sit them down and show them Horror Rises from the Tomb. If that doesn't do it. I don't know what else to do next, you know. Yeah, that's that's the that's the one that's easily will hit the nail on the coffin, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But then when I when I watch Night of the Howling Beast, I'm used to the old Universal Werewolf, maybe mm-hmm. Curse of Curse of the Werewolf from Hammer, 
But when you see Nashi's performance as the werewolf, it's like nothing I had really seen before, how uh, bestial he was and how animalistic he was and jumping around and all that. And immediately, again, you're like, holy crap, this is really good. Mm-hmm. So then he just set down that path of going, okay, what else did this guy do? (laughs) And that quest has been going on for quite some time. And of course, I assume much like Troy and Troy and I, and a lot of other people of our generation that involved haunting a number of bootleggers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the, and the work, not the worst, I tell you, it's and not to sound old. Maybe me and Troy can just talk about this, but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> searching the different titles and and spanish films were probably oh, the yeah. worst oh. as far as yeah, having yeah. numerous titles and then you're going well i got wolfman never sleeps but is that the same mm-hmm. as werewolf shadow or what's missing and so then you get into that and well i've got one that's uncut but the quality's per is crap but i got this one yeah. that looks really good except it's got all the nudity cut out so that was a long journey and but it was an, it was exciting to try to find these different uh, films that you couldn't just go rent. I mean, there was a good amount of his stuff on VHS if you could find it. Yeah, um, yeah. I got a few from Blockbuster uh, over the years. Like you know, of course, the, my first way I ever saw Night of the Werewolf was uh, was at, under the title of The Craving. Uh, you know, it has how I rented it from Blockbuster, and even as cut as that version is, I still just thought it was the incredible fun. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's how I first saw it, and then I do remember uh, that Blockbuster carried uh, House of Psychotic Women there. I remember that they had a, had a copy mm-hmm. of that on VHS. Yeah, there was uh, Inquisition, not Inquisition, uh, Exorcism, mm-hmm. or Exorcismo was out. Um, then you had, like, from all seasons, um, Human Beast, and what was the other one? Uh, wow, I didn't see Human Beast until it came out on DVD. Yeah, that was in a big, one of the big box releases. Um, but they, they were hard to find depending on what video stores you were going. So, yeah, I would be up for buying it from the gray market and import prints. I had a PAL tape, not a PAL tape. Yeah, a Turkish PAL tape of Night of the Howling Beast <laughs> under the mm-hmm. Werewolf and the Yeti title, mm-hmm. um, which are, it was still dark as hell. Yeah, yeah. The first, first copy I ever got of that was really, really dark. Yeah, when it's the nighttime and the werewolf's out and you're like, okay, this was shot day for night. I still yeah. cannot see anything. Yeah, yeah. I can only see the white, <laughs> a little bit of the white snow, and that's all I can see. <laughs> or, or his teeth. You can see his teeth. Yeah, teeth. <laughs> and, and that was yes. it. But to be now a fan and see all of right. these films yeah. in Blu-ray, um, and especially some films that never even made it over here, Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was buying uh, the uh, Night of the Executioner. I had from a, a Spanish VHS release with no subtitles. That was the only print that I had ever seen before. So it, it's just it's amazing to see the, all his stuff. I shouldn't say all, but a lot of his stuff um, available like it is today. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've gotten a lot more on Blu-ray than I than I honestly thought we would see. Yeah. Um, when but it just seems as if once in. Um, 2017 the floodgates opened i mean they really it's it's slowed down but the reason it's slowed down is most of the big titles have come out there are still a few of the biggie horror films from nashi that have not yet made it to blu-ray over here but uh, we're getting down to only a few right and if you told me 
in 2015, 2016, you know, we were at that point five, six years into doing the podcast that that was going to be the way it was. I would have laughed at you. <laughs> well, I hope so, but I really, I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, there there was a lot of titles that, are, like, well, Night of the Howling Beast specifically. I'm like, please, someone put this out on DVD because it needs to be cleaned up. You cannot yeah. see mm-hmm. anything. And when they announced the second, the second, not the first, but the second box set, Nashi box set, that was going to be on there. Um, so, I mean, it's just a, a thrill to see this stuff. But, yeah, I agree. I, you had asked me 10 years ago that all this stuff was going to be out. I, you're nuts. There's no way. you got to find the prints. you got to do all this. Someone mm-hmm. has to. you got to strike the deal. Somebody yeah, has I mean, to want crazy. to go through the process. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, now it's just it's amazing. Well, uh, this is this is a question that <clears throat> eventually will get tossed out when Nashi fans start talking to each other. But uh, which of the Daninsky films is your personal favorite? For the longest time, it was Night of the Howling Beasts, and that probably is goes back to that was my first. Right. But when um, Night of the Werewolf came out in the, I think the first box set, yes. I watched that to. Because I had seen the craving, like Troy, you had mentioned. Yeah, I, yeah. I'd, I'd seen that before, so I'm watching Night of the Werewolf, and something just hit me like, holy crap, this is like really well made. It's one of the, I think, one of the best looking werewolf makeups in his films. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, and as much as I, I do like uh, Werewolf versus the Vampire Women, I, I think that's a uses a lot of the slow motion way too much. Where, where okay. in uh, Night of the Werewolf, it's it's just all all craziness, and then mm-hmm. he throws in you got almost like a Templar in there. Yeah, um, oh, I know. you got everything in there. So, the more times that I've seen that, that has moved to number one, and and it's still one of my favorite. I mean, it, it's just such a great film. And fun I was to just watch. going back to the scene of uh, Julia Sally, you know, as the as the the vampire queen, you know, queen where she's. Uh, when she gets to bathe herself in blood is just one of the most amazing scenes because she, they just totally go for it. I mean, this isn't like, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, this isn't like the, I, you know, I the, fell in love with her and I don't remember oh, if this was, oh, it was this film. I, I, I don't know if it was this film, but one of hers, she was, she just, I fell in love with her. And so oh, yeah. seeing her in this one, it was yeah. amazing. Yeah. She was, she was fantastic. She really was. It really was. Well, also for me, <clears throat> if you want to talk about that one particular film, Night of the Werewolf, it is one of the most beautifully photographed yeah. of the werewolf films, if not the most beautifully photographed. It is gorgeous. It is. I mean, there are scenes where you get these uh, you get these uh, shots where uh, it, it's not it's not totally candlelight, but you, but you're you're playing with uh, having candles in the background, and candles in the foreground. It's got this lush look to it. There's this. Uh, it's not. I wouldn't call it soft focus. But it's just gorgeous. There's something about the cinematography. He was he allowed his his DP to really take the time to to make that movie look just as beautiful as they could get it. Every time I go back to watch that movie, there are there are times I will just kind of get lost in staring at how pretty it is. Just physically pretty the images are. Yeah. And uh, don't get me wrong. As much as I I, I enjoy. Uh, all of the Nanitsky films in one way or another, there are very few moments in any of them other than Night of the Werewolf that I will honestly just stop myself and look at it and go, man, that's beautiful. Yeah. Now, the other one that has some of that 
was the the, the Daninsky film made right after that, where he once again had a lot of pheno- phenomenal technicians and they had the time and the money to do what they wanted to, and that's Beast and the Magic Sword. But the it's a different it's a different look. It's still a beautiful looking film, but it's still a very different look from what they got with. Uh, with Night of the Werewolf, it's just it's it's kind of amazing. Well, I um just yesterday uh, did a recorded a show with uh, you guys uh, familiar with Stephen Turek, you know, who does the uh, does the um, diecast movie podcast. Mm-hmm. I was a guest on his show yesterday uh, to talk about El Comandante, and uh, we uh, talked about you know the that one kind of one of the unsung heroes in Nashi's films, especially the films he directed uh you know as his cinematographer mentioned you know that worked on a lot of those as uh, alejandro uloa uloa i guess is maybe i mean it's u-l-l-o-a i think so i just say uloa. Yeah. but nashi uh, had talked about how he and before making uh el Comandante, that he and uloa went to a local museum you know went to a museum there in spain and studied really closely the paintings of i think it was a uh, um Bruegel and uh, and then also Van Eyck, and you know, because they really wanted to determine how they wanted the film to look and based it on those paintings. And he really went, and it's pretty much I think both El Comandante and Night of the Werewolf have that same kind of color palettes there that are just amazing, you know, so striking. Mm-hmm. There, the same shades and tones there that that are just make them beautiful to look at. Well, that's that same cinematographer who shot um, Hard yeah, Express right. back in '72, right, yeah. and so this is a guy who knows how to on a budget. Mm-hmm really make something look just beautiful i mean a lot of a lot of these things come down to to brilliant set decoration as well but his lighting is phenomenal he gets to play around in night in night of the werewolf he gets to play around outside in some very beautiful sun-drenched areas out in those ruins and then you get all that stuff that's in all those interiors where it just it feels so wonderful. It feels it, well. It feels like a million bucks is the cliche I would use. But you know they didn't have nearly that much. But it looks really good. Another really great shot in that film, pardon the pun, is when he shoots that guy with a crossbow. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I think he shot yeah. the guy. He's... <laughs> well, I don't. I don't know. That, that, that's an incredible effect. It is because I've watched it over and over again, and I'm yeah. like, okay, well, if he's got like a piece of wood or something in his chest, fucking kudos to you for going. Okay, I'm ready. Go ahead and try to hit the. <laughs> Go ahead try, and plug. Yeah, try to hit where the wood or whatever is, because every time I see that, I'm like, it really looks like he got shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and you know we we you know we're sophisticated f- film watchers who've been seeing these things and and catching all of the little mistakes and and tricks all over the place. And so I don't know about you, but I almost always can spot the uh, you know the the wire or the the string that uh, that these things are you know spears or arrows are being guided into a preset place to to connect with you know the the costuming on a, a person's body. And yeah, that's one of those shots where I can't see it. <laughs> I don't know what happened there. Do we see that, that actor later? Like somebody got shot. Well, no, crazy. <laughs> no crazy. Some of these European stunt men can be. You know, they might just have said, "Hey, give me a little padding and just go ahead and fire away." You know? Yeah, have a medic on the side. Yeah, I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm, go- I'm, gonna w- I'm gonna wear a piece of steel on my chest, yeah. so there's no way you can kill me. It'll hurt like hell. But... <laughs> so okay, so if. So there's that there's that question like what's your favorite Daninsky film right so the 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 second question then becomes and there's a third question so we're not done yet Uh don't worry but the second question is what is your favorite 
non-Daninsky Nashy horror film. Outside of, I think I may already know. Yeah, outside of Horror Rises from the Tomb. I was about to say that's that. I almost always have to kind of say <laughs> other than Horror Rises from the yeah. Tomb, because we're all just going to stand there and point to that yeah. one and go, "Well, if I've yeah, got it, right. um, yeah, it's kind of like other than that, Mrs. Lincoln. How was the play? <laughs> um, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I would. Oh man, see that's a tough one because I immediately I would probably think a Hunchback of the Morgue. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um. Probably would still have to go with that one. Okay. But, yeah. And it's probably because I'm not thinking of some of the other ones. Um, Mummies, the Mummy's Revenge is one that um, I hated the first time I saw that. No, really? Oh, yeah. Really? Why, uh, my, my same buddy had burned me a copy of that because that was his favorite, Nashi. And I don't know if it was because it's the old, I think it was Unicorn Video. Again, that print was so dark that you couldn't see a lot of stuff. And mm-hmm. I don't know what it was, but I watched this and I went, oh, my God, that's terrible. Actually recorded over it and then oh. got more and more into Nashi and went, shit, you know what? Maybe I should watch this again and give it another try. So I had to call my buddy up and go, um, can you send me another copy of that? Mm-hmm. And of course, I got so much crap from him going, "What? You know the one you hated? You want a, another copy of that?" So <laughs> I, I still eat crow today for that. But um, that one, I, as well, you should. I know. I trust me. I have no excuse. Um, but I love again, kind of like what he did with the werewolf. He took the mummy and made it damn scary again. And Christopher Lee was the mm-hmm. only one to really do that when you compare that to the ha- the early Universal, but then Nashi took it even to a different yeah. level. Yeah. And even set it in the same rough period and location yeah. as Hammer films tended to be set, as if he was kind of like pointedly yeah. one-upping them. This isn't going to take place in the 1970s. This is going to take place in the old Hammerville, and let's just ramp up the violence and, and the nudity and just the viciousness and go to town. Oh, I'll never forget the first time... <laughs> I always think of me and my little brother seeing that for the first time on television. It actually played on one of the UHF channels. And by that time, I was, by the time it came on, I was familiar with who Paul Nashie was, you know. And, and uh, so, but we watched it and it was, you know, the, you know, it didn't have any nudity in it. But what amazed me was they kept the skull smashing scenes in. Oh, know? wow. And we're like, we're my bro- <laughs> little brother, but we're like, whoa. You know, when that happens, we're like, we're like, this is, this is, this is not your, your it's not your mother's mummy here. This is, no. Uh, really like this is some serious stuff going on here <laughs> not your mother's mummy that's great <laughs> there's a tagline yeah. for a film there you go oh man but yeah that was pretty amazing to see that it's like ooh, that, that one got past the the, the editors they got past the tv censors there <laughs> Well, that's heartening to hear for me anyway, because I'm, I'm, I've gotten a lot of shit over the years from a, a, a podcast uh, partner who will not be named <clears throat> Troy, yeah. and uh, who uh, who has a tendency to make fun of me for my fascination with uh, mummies. And uh, I've always held that uh, Vengeance of the Mummy is uh, one. I mean, it's, it, it invariably ends up in my top five Nashi films because I just I, I can every time I watch it, I'm just kind of stunned by how well done it is from yeah. top to bottom to me it's uh and and this will this will sound kind of strange let me explain myself a little bit to me if it had been placed in the same public domain position as Hara express was in this country 
I think that it would now be as well-beloved as Hara Express is overall. Because it's got, outside of it having, you know, it, it, does, it doesn't have Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee and Telly So, you know, you have to give Horror Express that. There's a, certain, there's a certain level of recognizability of the cast that kind of uh, takes on a, a certain level of fascination for almost any audience. But Vengeance of the Mummy is just, it, it, it really, really works. And even if you were watching a print on television that had the nudity trimmed out, and maybe most of the violence, uh, it still has a punch, you know? Uh, it still has some uh, a nasty streak, and it's just impossible to to ignore it once it gets rolling. And uh, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. It's, uh, it's. I'm, I'm glad to see there's somebody else on my side with this whole vengeance of the mummy thing. <laughs> I, I like. I, I am, I am, I am harmed by the fact that it seems that that Blu-ray uh, now seems to be one of the more difficult ones to get hold of, and it just came out a couple years ago. Hmm. I, I think, I, I think, kind of like. Um, like I said, with the werewolf, Nashi did something with the mummy that was completely different because uh, Lee did it where he was very dominating and very, you know, a physical presence. But he wasn't mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he, he wasn't uh, like Nashi where he was speaking. He was conscious. He was his mm-hmm. same character. Right. Um, right. And one mean son of a bitch that especially when you grew up on the universal stuff. And I, and I love the character of the mummy. But my God, if you can't walk away from that thing and still be alive, I mean, it, it's not a threatening monster. Hell, just set them on fire. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. Fire, fire fire is a problem. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But but Nashi in, in Mummy's Revenge, Revengeance of the Mummy, he takes it to a completely different level. And you're right. It is he is one of the few screen mummies. He it is almost like this this straight line upward from uh, from Christopher Lee's interpretation in the Hammer film, where now this this mummy is a prime mover. Yeah, he's not being used by anybody. He's the guy setting the pace and telling people what to do. And if they disobey, even if it, even if it's somebody who disobeys, who strangely enough looks exactly like him. <laughs> <laughs> then they will pay the price. Right. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, at what point during your viewing of Nashi films did you realize that uh, Nashi had a tendency to write a couple of extra roles for himself whenever he got the opportunity? Oh, that didn't take long at all. I mean, hell, horror is from the tomb. He's in it three times. Right. Um, Vengeance <laughs> of the Mummies in her twice. I mean, he he was doing that a lot. Um, I And I I thought that was... I kind of appreciated that because I didn't take it as he's just trying to get his face on the screen more. He He's a monster fan. He wants to play the monster, but yet I can also play this descendant, which would make sense. Um, mm-hmm. And in Horror Rises from the Tomb, it's the same way. He's playing his descendant and and his brothers mm-hmm. from his... Yeah. So that didn't that didn't bother me. And, and one of the things that I've always said about Nashi is... The difference between him and Karloff, Lugosi, Cushing and them is Nashi was making the films he wanted to make. It wasn't that that's all he was getting offered. Right. So yeah. as much as we say that Karloff is an icon and, and, and he is, mm-hmm. Nashi set off on his path to do this. And for that, I give him so much credit because he's a fan. Mm-hmm. 
And so he set out, and when he couldn't find projects to be in, he made them, he created them himself. So I, I just, I love the guy to death for what he was doing, and, and he kept doing it. Even when those films weren't popular, he did vary a little bit in the, in the 80s and stuff, but he still came back to the horror genre. And he really was kind of the, really one of the first, if not the first, to, to be kind of, to come from that, you know, from that aspect of making films as a fan you know as a as a uh, you know of, of of those classic monsters you know and like there's so many as as later in later decades more and more people wrote books and and did movies that were homages to those monsters you know homages to to the classic horror and it's not so uncommon these days to, to you know to see all sorts of media that's now art that's been created by the people who grew up that way but right he was still very. He was. He was one of the forefront of doing that. Plus, consider that. Oh, yeah, and, and it's. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say. Plus, considering the fact that he was in a country that did not want those films. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And he yeah. he did them anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it reminds me that um, it's during that same period of time, the the late '60s and the '70s, when um, they're they're in in the comic book field you had that first generation of writers who grew up reading comic books who were then being able to move into the field as fans and become professionals and Nashi is one of the very few horror filmmakers who was you know was an all-rounder he you know he started out as a writer became an actor and then became a producer and director and he's one of the few who honestly came to filmmaking with a love of the genre at the forefront of his creative thought processes, and that it, that makes him, you know, very similar to a lot of the, a lot of those writers who grew up loving the horror the horror comics they read when they were a kid, those EC comics that you know then then got yanked off the shelves, right. and then were able to start writing things for you know creep you know all the Warren magazines, creepy and eerie, and all that kind of stuff, and all the other magazines of that type. Where they where they moved into the professional level of fandom, uh, you know they kind of tra- traded upwards. They they made good to a large degree. Right. And Nashi is one of the very few instances until modern day where you where you can find someone who is a major fan of this stuff and then man- manages to find a way to parlay success in one field. You know in that in the field of uh, movies into making the kind of movies they really wanted to make in the first place. Right. And it's uh it's 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 fun to see, but he is the only classic horror icon as you were saying who honestly was doing what he wanted to do when he was making horror movies. Yeah, and he he touched so many different subgenres and was pretty effective in in everything he did. I mean, he made a a really good giallo mm-hmm. that oh, is yeah. Com- oh, yeah. completely yeah. off of what you look at all the monster stuff he was doing, you know what? We're going to make a, a Jallo, and it's a really good film. Well, he made good police procedurals. Yeah, uh, he made. Well, I, I've said that he had. Uh, uh, he he made some comedies. We won't talk about those. <laughs> uh, but he made almost every genre of film, except that he never uh, he never got to make a western. Yeah, and I would have liked to have seen him do a western. Yeah, that would have been that would have been fun. But by the time you know, by the time I think he would have had the opportunity or the inclination, the you know the European Western had started to kind of die out almost completely. But the uh, 
the the idea of seeing him with a couple of six guns strapped on <laughs> playing a nasty bad guy who turns into a werewolf is something that I just have to fight down and not think of too much because it's a missed opportunity. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I, I I'm actually, uh, one thing I'm kind of surprised he never did and it may it'd be interesting to see what he would have done with it. Uh, uh, and it made me, John, your book made me think about it. Cause I know you talk about kind of, uh, you know, when you and I talked about this at monster bash is how we, who love classic monsters, you know, ultimately most people have the, the kind of classic monster they gravitate to the most, you know, that they just out of all of them, that's kind of the dearest to their heart, you know, uh, rod, poor soul, it's mummies, but we won't go into, uh, hey, that back. <laughs> Hey, but you're, yeah, wear that badge with on. Yeah, you know, with me, it's Godzilla, and then with you, John. You know, I know your, your book is talking about how how much you really uh, gravitated to the Frankenstein monster, and uh, mm-hmm. and it's interesting that Nashi never did a Frankenstein film. You know, the closest he came to, of course, was Assignment Terror. Um, but I think about it, and I don't think if he had done it, it'd just be interesting to see. Yeah, I don't think he would have played the monster. I kind of feel like he would have played dr frankenstein but i could be wrong about that but when i look at the when i look at the makeup on something like assignment terror on the monster you know i kind of think maybe we're better off that they never i you know i don't (laughs) you know they could do werewolves i don't know if the spanish makeup industry i don't know how if they ever quite grasped the got the 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 frankenstein monster you know down there but uh uh, because that some of the makeup in assignment terror looks good but frankenstein monster's not so great in that one. Well, well the, the mummy in Assignment Terror looks fantastic. Oh, yeah. It's fan- that, yeah, that's that's great. I love the mummy and, in that one. Yeah. And look what happened to him. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Fire. <laughs> Which, I gotta say, being a fan of the Universal stuff, you watch the, the battle scene between the werewolf and the mummy. Holy crap. Yeah. That is... Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a 10-year-old a kid eating popcorn just left and right going, oh my god, this is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but it's I, a great I, yeah. I don't know if he could have played I mean, I know he played the monster briefly in Hollow of the Devil. Right. But I don't think he had the build for right. the creature. Um I don't think he had the height is well, the sad part. Yeah. Exactly. You know? And and that's as much as I like uh Count Dracula's great love, he is completely miscast. He he does not have the build for a vampire. Um, and I love the look of that film, the, mm-hmm. the cast. Yeah, yeah, everything is awesome. But he and he's playing the pathos great. I mean, it's a it's a great film. But when you see him, you're just going, uh, <laughs> you. This it, is this is a hurdle. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it's 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 kind of like when Cheney Jr. played him in, in Son of Dracula. You're like, I, I just I'm not buying this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing is though, um, at least in uh, Son of Dracula. Uh, Drac- uh, the, the Dracula character that Cheney Jr. is playing, if you watch the movie with with the with a clear a clear eye, you'll realize that Dracula is pretty much a secondary character in that story. Yeah, and it's and it and it, it, it plays out well. It's just it's it's a it's a very interesting way to to realize what they were doing with the character. It's uh, uh, don't get me wrong, I would have much preferred to have had uh, a, a different thing where they brought Lugosi back and had the, you know had the Count invade uh, Louisiana and really you know make it try to be Louisiana. <laughs> but uh, the the uh, the. Yeah, I agree with you about Nashi not really necessarily fitting the bill, but he always makes me give a shit in that movie anyway, even though it is one of the most disjointed and ununderstandable stories that he ever got on screen. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah. still For fun. Reasons. Yeah, and so yeah. and just so visually amazing. I mean, for a 
for a film that has as many problems as it as it does, it is. I just I've always said I just find it like endlessly watchable, you know, because mm-hmm. it's just so so beautifully so beautiful to look at, you know. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's one of the well, things that I that I loved about Spanish horror in general is they took advantage of their locations. I mean, you had these yes. dilapidated dilapidated castles and caverns and underground tombs. I mean, shit, why wouldn't you be filming stuff there? Oh yeah. yeah, it would be it would be criminal to not take advantage of that stuff. And you've kind of this is great. You kind of dovetailed into a, a question that I usually have for people when we start talking about this stuff is that when you started getting into the European horror stuff from you know the, the ranges from roughly the the '60s through the the '90s, what, was there ever a point when you realized how different the stuff coming from Spain was than from the stuff that was coming out of Italy or France or, or Germany or anywhere else? Well, the the stuff. I mean, the two the two bigger markets there was the was Italy and, and Spain. Um, yeah. I mean, you had stuff from France, and but those for me tended to be a little bit more artsy. Um, uh-huh. You had Franco making films in every country in the world, and those all looked like Franco films for the most part. Uh, and that's not a criticism. That's just that's a a, a compliment to Franco. But mm. I think the Spanish ones. Because of like we just talked about the locations, um, the Spanish uh, film market seemed to be so small that you're like, there's that one guy, there's that yeah. other guy, there's that lady there, that's this person. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you have yeah. you have uh, Victor Israel that was in just about every Spanish film ever made. So <laughs> more than two hundred movies. Yeah, yeah. So you're like watching it, going, where is he? Where is he? There he is. There he is. I got him. Um, <laughs> And and it's just one of those things, that, and I like that as a younger uh, film fan when you're when you're experiencing more and more of this new stuff, um, because if you've never seen it before, it is a new film, and you start to see the same names, you start to see, um, which could be tricky too because they like to change their names, uh, but you see the same faces, and you start to go, okay, that was the same person here. And you start making those connections. So I, I really enjoyed that. You saw that in a smaller degree in Italian film, but th- because of that market was so bigger, mm-hmm. you didn't have the repeating character actors like you did in Spain. That's true. That's true. And those and those character actors, I mean, Victor Israel is my favorite example. I'm, I'm so happy you brought him up. But at, at the same time, there were also these, these other, uh, you know, these actors that would pop up in these things um, that you, you were just every time you see them, you're like, oh, oh, I know this guy, I know this guy, like Eduardo, Eduardo Calvo, and um, oh my goodness, I'm trying to think of some of the others. I mean, the the actresses kind of stand out in a lot of ways because oh yeah, the actresses with the actresses, you're definitely following them from place to place. They're being they're being hired because of the <laughs> the fact that they're going to draw your eye right. every time. Yeah, but the. Uh, it's it's the the male actors that you would start to see those faces pop up repeatedly and realize at a certain point that oh okay okay so I have seen this person in like five movies I will say that it was funny to me one of the the, the you the, you know you you talk about casting your eye around a, a, a Spanish movie trying to find familiar faces uh, Victor Israel is my favorite example of this where 
uh, soon after I had realized, okay, there's this actor, and I've now seen him in a few movies, and then I re-watched one particular movie, and I knew he was in it, but I couldn't pinpoint who he was because he was hidden behind this really big, bushy beard <laughs> and glasses, and he was acting very differently in the way he was dubbed. And what it is is that is that god-awful uh, film Crimson, the National oh. Crimson. <laughs> Where where Victor Israel's in it, but he's like he's he's the most disguised Victor Israel has ever seen has ever been in a movie, and it's it's like there's a, there's a part of me that would love to have gotten the chance to ask him is like so did you go to France and just want to pretend that you weren't there or were you ashamed of the film or was this some kind of con- concerted effort to to look so different no one would know it was you what's going on yeah that that's a film I tend not to recommend to younger Nashi fans just because you don't want to put that fire out immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that one will douse it. Well, and that was, I remember that was, I think the first one that really kind of came out on Blu-ray, you know, that we were just laughing and we're like, really seriously, that's the one that, you know, luckily it, you know, it didn't stay that way for long, but we were thinking that figures that would be the, that would be the one to lead the charge. (laughs) Yeah. And, and the video release with the big box with the, the severed head hang and you're like, Holy crap, this is going to be awesome. No, yeah, and uh-huh. not not so it much. <laughs> it ain't. Don't don't get your hopes up. It's it's not it's not. Good. But the uh, to to me the, the 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 joy that Troy and I had for years and years and years when we were this you know this little cult of two, uh, yeah. who would you know we would we would stumble across a bootleg here or there and, and then get together and, and check them out was uh, a lot of it revolved around something that uh, you still have to a, a small degree, but doesn't really exist in the way that it did when we were all uh, <laughs> lurking around dealers' rooms in the 1990s, which is that thrill of the chase, mm-hmm. trying to track down the the, uh, the hard-to-find ones, the ones that uh, had been released somewhere else in the world, and so somebody needs, you know, needs to create a bootleg of it so that the rest of us can see this thing. And sometimes... Uh, you end up with something that is a real nice shock and surprise. Uh, when when we finally got around to seeing something like um, The Last Kamikaze, it's like, you know, that's actually a pretty good film. That's good. Mm-hmm. Or uh, one of his uh, crime films. We get, we get our hands on one of the crime films. Yeah. Uh, he, made in, he made in the, uh, the, the 70s. Some of the stuff that he... Uh, in some ways uh, was involved in, but wasn't necessarily like the prime mover on, like The Sniper or something like that. And you're like, wow, this is a, this is a good movie. Okay. It's not a horror movie, but it's, you know, it's, these are good, these are good movies. And then, you know, you, you have that, that, that thing that eventually happens to you, which is where you, you stumble across, you can't, you can't stay away from it. You've heard things, you, you're going to see it because Maybe you got to see something like My Friend the Vagabond and you realize, okay, it's not the kind of movie that really necessarily appeals to me, but it's a good little movie. It's a sweet, kind little movie he made in the, in the mid-80s. It's, it's a holiday movie. It's kind of nice. My Friend the Bag- Vagabond is very good. And then you slam headlong into Operation Mantis. <laughs> and um, it, it's... it's um, let, 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 let's just say I, I love it for one reason and one reason only. We get to see Paul Nashy dressed up like a punk rocker, yeah, right. which yeah, is simultaneously one of the greatest and most embarrassing things in his entire career. <laughs> but, 
Oh, we all well, have we those. Also get, we, we, yeah, well, yeah, truly. Uh, well, that, we also get uh, Julia Sally dressed up in an incredibly oh, nice outfit. Yeah, so I love that's, she looks great. I'm not going to complain about that. Yeah, super villain outfit there. Super villainous. You know, it's great. That, that, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. But... There are these these challenges as these you know these these people who are just seeking this stuff out, finding it, especially when there was this is before there was a lot of information out there. You know, I mean, for a long period of time, the I, I had really just one resource to draw upon, and that was that famous issue of videos oh, yeah. that had that wonderful interview with Nashi, where and and then that separate thing where they went through all of his movies and had him comment on every one of them up through like whenever you know it was like 1992. Yeah. And so that was a good guide, a, 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 a way a way of knowing uh, what we were getting into to a degree. Didn't stop us from watching Operation Mantis. It should have, but <laughs> the days. Those, I mean, it, it, it's 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 difficult to not think of them as you know halcyon days, mm-hmm. but things are better now. The the yes, you don't have the hunt, you don't have that aspect of going and trying to find these things. But then at the same time, you have the most pristine version of not just Nashi films. My God, man, you can watch Lucio Fulci films in freaking four K. <laughs> Sometimes There's, that's there, that. Sometimes that's not a good thing. <laughs> no, it's not. But at the same time, it, well, what's even worse is you can now watch a Bruno Mattei zombie film in 4K. <laughs> I didn't know anybody was requesting that. Yeah. Well, I mean, Hell of the Living Dead. Are we serious here, people? But, well, Buried Alive. Not that that's Mattei, but I mean that's right up no, there. No, it's it's close enough. <laughs> um, but the the problem with 4K is, and I always go back to the example in Zombie when. And I can't remember her name, but the one girl gets her throat bit out by the poster zombie, Octavia Delacroix. Yeah, yeah. Her her neck is completely different color than her face. I mean, it's so obviously that's an appliance. Back in the bootlegs off of a a, a Japanese laser disc, we're convinced she actually got killed. He really (laughs) ripped her throat out. But you watch the the Blu-ray or the 4K now, and you're just like, ooh, ooh, okay, that that. that doesn't look so good. So sometimes 4K is not the greatest, but I don't know. I guess we take it for what it is. Mm-hmm. I'll have to say, I, I got I, with, with a zombie, I got up to the Blu-ray. And with the Blu-ray, it's like all of the things that I knew, you know, uh, they, they, seemed to, they, they seemed to get the color grading right. Everything looked, the, you know, as good as I think it was ever going to look. And there was a part of me that while I was watching the Blu-ray of Zombie realized, if this gets much more clear, I am not going to enjoy this as much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that's a strange thing to be able to say, but it's true. Yeah. Uh, back to your point about Operation Mantis. So there were two Nashi films back in those days where you're searching for any and everything that you can find that once you found it and you have that excitement and, and then you watch it, uh, one of them was queen of the jungle. Yeah. Kill, oh, yeah, kill the jungle. Yeah, yeah. 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 Which I don't remember being too entertaining. Um, <laughs> well, there, there were two. Well, no, he was only in one of them. He, yeah, he, he was in great white hunter. Pars- in one yeah, of them. He was Pars- also in, Tarzan and King Solomon's Mind, right, which was right. a different film. Yeah. The, the other one that I was even more excited for was The Mystery on Monster Island. Oh, boy. <laughs> wow, because oh, I, still Peter, I still haven't watched it. Peter Cushing, like, yeah. you have yeah. Paul Nashie. Yeah. I had no idea that it was a kid's, kid's 
kids movie and you're watching this going oh my god yeah and now she's only in the very beginning and i mean it's a it's a novelty but holy cow is that a rough movie to watch i've had it for so long on dvd but like rod i still just not made myself watch it yet because of just i know it's it's one of those where yeah, I know. I know. I know. Ultimately, need to see for myself, but its reputation is so negative. I mean, you know, it just, yeah. it just doesn't encourage you to, you know, to, 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 to throw it in the DVD player anytime soon. But I have. I've said for. I've said forever that I need to watch it simply because it was made by the man who made Pieces. How bad? I mean, sorry. How good can it be? Uh, how good? How good? Bad can it be? Yes, something like that. It's one of those. J. J. Uh, P. Simon or Simone or. Uh, depending on which Long country you're from. Or yeah. Or whatever, yeah. When he, when he hit a run, he knocked it out of the park. When he didn't, whew, he was <laughs> struck out on three pitches because he's made a few of them that are just like almost unwatchable. Um, oh, well, I, I find with, with Wampicare Simone, I, I don't get me wrong. I came, I came to him through pieces uh, I saw pieces in the theater when I was a teenager, and there's a there's a, a level of affection that I will just I will never ever get away from with that thing. But at the same time, I'm the one who who can sit down and tell you that I honestly do love the batshit movie Slugs. Oh, I mean, I I love it to death. He, I, yeah. Let me let me correct myself because uh, pieces is probably one of the greatest films slasher giallo whatever you want to call it i mean that's amazing slugs is awesome the rift is highly entertaining as cheesy as it is i so think it's it, fine yeah he he did make some good films but then you watch cthulhu mansion and you're like yeah. what the hell is going on here i can still enjoy it well i mean if you want if you want another example look at extraterrestrial visitors or also known as the pod people. I originally saw the damn thing as a mystery science theater episode. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's about where it stands. Yeah. <laughs> it's, that is about right. Yeah. Yeah. Although I will say I kind of, I kind of have a soft spot in my, in my heart and maybe my brain for supersonic man. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you never know. It could be the budget could have been the rush production. So you don't want to, I'm not blaming him. It's just, at the end of the day, it, it's not up there on the same par of some of his really, really good ones. No, no, no. But the 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 thing that has kept me from watching Mystery on Monster Island all this time is that I knew before I ever watched it that it was a kids' movie, and not in the way that I hoped. I was like, oh, is it is it going to be you know because it has Peter Cushing and is it going to be like uh, some of the the movies he made in the the seventies before Star Wars is it going to be like at the um, Earth's, Earth's core at the Earth's core at the Earth's core I can I can I can watch at the Earth's core on a loop I'm fine with that and then I I, I kept people I kept seeing people kind of shake their head and look down we're like no that's not like that <laughs> <laughs> not one of those yeah yeah one of those you man. have to check it off the list but man <laughs> you're not going to enjoy checking it off the list. no no you it is strictly. I have to watch this. I have to watch this. And maybe, <laughs> maybe if you go into it with that low expectation, you'll come out and go, well, that wasn't terrible. And, and you may be right. I mean, you really may be right. That's true. Until you um, bring that up to someone else and goes, are you nuts? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Well, and then that, and well, the thing is, that's fine because then you get to explain yourself and they get to explain themselves. And therefore we have conversation. There you go. 
Oh my goodness. If you had to, uh, out of all of the Nashi films that are still waiting, well, there aren't that many of them, as we've already said, what are the Nashi films that you're waiting for a Blu-ray release of the most? Which the What's the one you anticipate the hardest? Uh, the 3D Frankenstein's Bloody Terror. Mm. Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah, so I can't that, believe we don't have that already. That Well, there's a print. Yeah. Sam Sherman's got it. So, um, And it screened, what, once over on the East Coast? Years ago, I think um, it may have screened a couple of times. Oh, did because it? There, well, what it was is I know that there for a little while, I was actually calling people uh, here in Nashville uh, at the uh, the art house theater, our, our fantastic art house theater here called the Belcourt, uh, telling them, "Hey, look, if this gets offered, uh, guarantee you're going to sell at least two tickets to this <laughs> if you can get if you can if you can book this." Uh, but I don't think they ever got the opportunity, so I don't know how you know. I don't know if it traveled very much at all. But uh, I did. I do know that there was there were noises made about there you know yeah. there being more than just a couple of screenings of it. Yeah, that's probably the the top. Just because I I, I don't know I, I don't know how well it would work or how well the effects work, but it's one that I would just love to be able to see. Um, especially if he had the chance to see it in the theater. Yes, yes, I'm with you. There, there's still, uh, there's still a couple of outstanding Nashi films that we haven't gotten yet, and uh, I think that we will eventually. You know, bit by bit, piece by piece. The, the, uh, well, I mean, let's put it this way. I was shocked beyond all comprehension when we were told that Night of the Executioner was coming out. I mean, yeah, really. From 1992, his his version of Death Wish. You're kidding me. They were deadly serious, and I'm I'm just glad that 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 happened, that that existed. But now, once we got to the point where, and this is this is I've kind of held off talking a little bit about. Um, once we got to the point where Mono Macabro, those those geniuses, those people who deserve all of the the roses and kisses, got their hands on Howl of the Devil. Once that happened, I thought. Oh my God! There's really nothing that we won't eventually turn up. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, my God! The, the only thing—I mean, like at this point, there are two completely impossible films that may or may not have any way to actually have existed that I can now start hoping for because *How the Devil* came out. There's the uh, film that he made or at least mostly shot, but was never completely finished, down to the soundtrack, The Horror in the Wax Museum in 1990. Uh, never completed from everything that we know, never completed from what Nashi said, because there was no set, they, they never did the soundtrack, I don't know if they did a final edit or anything like that. Would still love to get a chance to see that. And then, of course, there's the legendary, probably doesn't exist, Daninsky film that, you know, it probably wasn't made. I mean, we've got to we've got to be realistic. You know, right. just it, it probably doesn't exist. And besides, even if it did exist and somebody turned up, you know, segments of it, uh, he he's fully acknowledged that he he cannibalized the script for that thing and used it in a couple of the different Daninsky films down the road. Uh, so you know, all well and good, perfectly fine. If some, you know, if some of that project ended up in Fury of the Wolfman, you know, so much the better. But um, oh, that's a question for you. Now, what do you think of Fury of the Wolfman? It has some of the best poster art out of <laughs> all his movies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we get at that. 
<laughs> oh, well, well played, sir. Um, I was not expecting that. It is not one of my favorite of the Daninsky films. Um, but it's one of those, that's an early one because that was released on VHS. Um, so that was one of the first ones when I started getting into it, that was, I don't want to say easily found, but it was easier than like with some of the ones that we've been talking about. Um, so when you're not, when you don't have that full plethora of film titles, you're just grabbing whatever you can, you can, and you still have that excitement. I was thrilled to watch it. And yeah, yeah there's. It, it, it's not his best. And you see that more and more as you progress through the rest of the films. Mm-hmm. That one is like, okay, that's not a good one anymore. That one's better. Okay. That's down even farther. Um, <laughs> but it, it's, I would not say that it's, it, it's not like I would put it with crimson where you go, Oh no, no, no. Don't watch that at all. Ever. Mm-hmm. Ever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a fun werewolf movie. It's it, but it does have its issues. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's it, you can yeah it has crimes. <laughs> well, it's fun. It has real crimes. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's fun to. It's certainly a fun film to talk about. I mean, you know, I mean, right now we're 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 we, as as much as we have fun with that film and 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 talk to, you know we would love to have gotten a chance to do the audio commentary on it you know because uh, oh god yeah. just because there's so much to talk about and just mainly just say what what was going on here what was what was this supposed to to be you know but there's a lot of really interesting ideas in the film for sure i mean a lot of yeah. that, that they you know didn't really play with more but you know but they, they they did have some some definitely interesting takes on it and 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 interesting kind of you know kind of ideas there going on but uh uh i was going to ask you john what 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 did you think of the first time you saw howl of the devil and were you aware before you saw it kind of the history of it as far as like nashy's state of mind and that it was going to be kind of this you know how bitter the film was going to be, or what? I mean, did you know much about it when you first time you saw it? And what did you think of it? The first time was a bootleg, uh, really crappy looking bootleg, and I don't remember if it was subtitled. Mm-hmm. I believe oh, wow. it was subtitled. Yeah, yeah, subtitled is the only way that any of us got to see it. Yeah, so I mean, it was many, many, many years ago before the uh, Blu-ray came out where I had seen it, and. I, I I'm not. Sure. I don't think at the time I really knew the background of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just was excited because Howard Vernon was in it and mm-hmm. Carolyn Monroe was in it, and plus he plays all these different characters, um, mm-hmm. which I thought were was pretty cool. Um, I I think the another film where the the bitterness really really came out was uh, uh, what do you call it, Rojo Sangre. Mm, oh, very much so. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 See, that one is when I watched it and went, "Okay, I'm really depressed right now," <laughs> because yeah. it it is extremely autobiographical, uh-huh. and it's. I mean, it was really sad to watch that because this was really before his uh, resurgence came about, where he actually started getting notoriety and stuff. So, watching that one, that one was tough. Yeah. And yeah. that one, hell of, a, hell, of, hell of a movie though. It is. It's a great movie, and it's well shot, and it's got some pretty decent CGI stuff in there. Um, but again, Nashi just knocks it out of the park. But it's the whole concept of what, who he's playing, basically himself, that mm-hmm. he's this forgotten actor, and you're just sitting there going, "Oh my god!" <laughs> then it just wants you to get out, wave the flag even more, going, "No, this guy's awesome. You guys gotta yeah. know about him." Right. Right. So I think that's the the coolest thing is that 
he got his popularity back before he passed away. Yeah, that is a, that yes. is always yes. nice to know that he, he did get to, to see some of that in his later years, last years, you know, got to see uh, how much he was appreciated. And uh, we should we got to mention the fact that, yeah, you're one of the very, very lucky souls who met the man face to face. I know you, you devote a whole chapter to it in your uh, book, but uh, I'm, I'm very, very envious. But that's awesome. You got to <laughs> You got to do that, though. It, so. It's one of those that when you'd get the new issue of, of Fangoria and it would list who the upcoming uh, guests are at the next show. And in 97 or 96, it was Lucio Fulci. So you're like, well, I'm going to New York in January. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there, there's no question. You just hope that he's actually a guest and not a, an advertisement that Creation and Fango used to like to do. Um <laughs> But he was there. That was awesome. And literally, I think it, you know, it was the very next year. See the ad? Paul Nash is going to be there. I immediately call up my friend John, who's got me hooked on all this. And I'm like, January, we're going to New York because yeah. <laughs> Paul Nash is going to be there. And uh, I remember checking in and I seen him and his wife waiting in the lobby. And it's like, shit, wow. he's here. Oh, man. Um, I got a ton of stuff signed. Uh, didn't cost a dime. Which mm, was nice. Those are the days. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about being an old man. <laughs> um, but it, it 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 was somewhat sad because the auditorium wasn't packed. Yeah. But there was enough people in there that Nashi eventually wrote um, that he was very honored to see a, a a fan base of that size in a country that he had no idea he was even known. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that yeah. that was very very cool. Oh man, I mean, I, I'm, yeah. That that is one of the great things that that Troy and I always wish we'd gotten the opportunity to do, and we we missed our oppor- we we missed our chance. Yeah, yeah. And so envious is the right word. No, he was didn't speak hardly any English, but uh, he he was super friendly, and as a collector and Nashi fan, uh, well, not just specifically Nashi, but as a collector, there is nothing better than whipping out some memorabilia that they go what what is this where did yeah. you, what is this from because i have a, a spanish press book i think it's spanish or maybe german for horror rises from the tomb and it's one of those color ones that is like there's a half a page and then a full page and it's all glossy color and it's mm. all shots from the film and i had that to have him sign it and he sat there for five minutes looking at this thing like <laughs> I've, I've, I've never seen this before <laughs> so that's always that's always fun. Now, what, it, it, I, would I, would Nashi be the most the most? Uh, well, let's put it this way. I mean, you've you've met got autographs from a number of horror icons. I mean, is is Nashi the pinnacle? Who who else fits on that list? Um, I would say between him and Fulci, only because they're not hit from here in the states. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. yeah. when, when you, you get the chance to see, okay. And especially you're thinking this is the late nineties. They're going to have Paul Nashy at a show. Yeah. Yeah. I nice. mean, 80% of the crowd going to Fango are going to go, who's that? Yeah. Cause that really was that dead time there between yeah. you know, before the internet and before, you know, kind of after the heyday of those films, you know, between, you know, when, yeah, it was, it was tough to find any kind, any mention of him anywhere. Right. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. there's, there's people like that, that 
I mean, just the idea that you're going to be able to meet them, meeting yeah. some of the people from Hammer that have been at like Monster Bash, you're going, what What are the odds of these people being over here in the States where you're going to have time to spend five minutes talking to them or something like that? So yeah. it, those are the ones that I think are more highlighted than other people that I would still consider like icons over here, like Jack Hill, um, hell, even Ted Michaels. I mean... It, they're they're not big Hollywood stars, but I mean to big film fans, I mean I think the world of these guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But I would, yeah, I would have to say Nashi and and Fulci are probably the top two only because of. I mean, they only did Fulci did one show here in the states. Nashi did two, and that was it. Yeah, we're well aware. <laughs> <laughs> Thank for me. You want me, to, you want me to send you photos, Rod? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'd like you to keep them to yourself, sir. <laughs> but it was I don't nice. have I don't I don't have an open wound and I I see you have a bottle of salt. <laughs> Thank you. It was nice to see him very uh I'm appreciative is not really the right word, but just that he got to see at least some part of his fan base. That was really cool. Because there's, as you guys probably know, there's nothing just utterly gut-wrenching terrible than meeting a hero and go, you going to buy something? No. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, that's, yeah. yeah. There there are those who, uh, yeah, that uh, just walk up and the first thing they say to you is the price on the, they point to the photos and tell you the price, you know, or something. Yeah. Yeah. There are those who do that, yeah. (laughs) And, And I even tend to shy away from, guests these days because of that reason if it's someone that i really admire or enjoy their work Mm -hmm. i don't want to have in the future every time i watch one of their movies they come on screen and i'm gonna go that's a jerk yeah that's a jerk jerk. yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. no i i I get you on that yeah but now she was very cool that that thing you were talking about earlier where you know you got all these autographs and they didn't cost you a nickel it's like i i still to this day i talk to people who have never known a time when celebrity uh, celebrity autographs were were free they just did yeah. it uh and, and, and it's it, that's the reason why i've never been able to really bring myself to pay for someone's autograph because i came up in the book selling world i came up you know running bookstores and working in bookstores and you know authors signed your book to encourage you to buy more books mm-hmm. that's what that was there for <laughs> you know they they were there to meet meet their fans talk to them sign the books uh tell stories uh they were not there to you know to pick your pocket and so you know when you when you've been around people who you've admired since your childhood like you know ray bradbury or Clive Barker, and these are people who are spending hours signing stacks of books for people for nothing, just mm-hmm. just with a big smile on their face and, and talking to you and shooting the shit. I can't throw down a fifty dollar bill for an actor's autograph. I just cannot do it. I'm sorry. I I, I re- it would have to be someone really special for me to do that these days. But the first Monster Bash I went to, and I think it was. 2015 mm-hmm. i think i've got like 15 books signed between gregory mank and and um troy howarth is there and i think tom weaver maybe he was the next year but i got a shitload of books signed cost me zero yeah. oh yeah yeah and yeah. i remember posting that on my review of the convention and a somewhat co-worker replied well that's because they already got paid they're you know they don't need to do that 
And it's like, I'm sorry, I thought actors already got paid for their work, too. <laughs> yes. But <laughs> because of the whole fanager thing, and they've convinced these celebrities that these are customers and not fans. Yeah. yeah. And, like, to your point, Rod, that's the way people nowadays have grown up in it. Yeah. It's not going to change. For 20 years, nearly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, oh, my God, this person was so nice to me. That's because you gave them seventy five dollars. I'll be real yeah, nice. You yeah. just give me fifty. I'll be your best friend for five minutes. <laughs> so like, you, you, you know how I know some of these people were really nice because I ended up in conversation. You know how I know that uh, James Elroy is a really nice guy, at least when I met him, because we ended up in a fifteen minute conversation at a bookstore where he was signing books. Yeah. Yeah. I, what what did what did I have in common with this guy? That I liked his books, and we yeah. talked for fifteen minutes. It, it's it's amazing. There are a few celebrities out there left. They're far and few between. But a, a couple of years ago, when Don Coscarelli uh, put out his autobiography, The True Indie, yeah, he was here in Chicago at a movie theater doing a uh, screening of Bubba Hotep and a book signing. So I'm standing out in the middle, out in the front of the theater on the street uh, with a friend of mine talking. And I look over and, okay, here's Coscarelli walking down the street. And obviously we both had horror T-shirts on. He stops us and goes, hi, I'm Don. I'm here. Are you guys here for the signing? And he spent 15 minutes talking to us just <laughs> like a normal guy. And then he goes, okay, I got to get inside for the sign. I'll see you guys in there. And he walks away, and I'm looking at my buddy, and he's like, did that just happen? <laughs> like, that's Don Coscarelli, because he has not moved, you know, like the, the, a lot of these other ones, where he understands what's important, and the fan base is what's important. Yeah. It's reminding me of all these stories I hear. I've heard for the past, like, decade about uh, Henry Winkler who is apparently one of the nicest human beings you uh, you will ever meet. Right. And he will go he will go and do these press events. He'll go and do these conventions and things like that. And uh he will he'll he'll be out in front of his table talking to people and shaking hands and someone has to guide him back behind the table to get him to sign stuff for people because <laughs> yeah. he's just out there talking. It's just like okay, well, you know, if you're gregarious, if this is the way you are, if you enjoy meeting people and this is what and you're doing this because you enjoy doing it. It becomes a different thing. I mean, there, I think all of us have, you know, ba you know, so, some. I I, ne I never had bad uh, stories to tell about one uh, one celebrity or another uh, uh, while I was working in in bookstores because, like I say, these were authors. They knew damn good and well <laughs> that the people who were coming to see them were fans. It's not like this was right. you know this was an this they were they were there for a specific purpose, and if these people showed up. They were already on their side. Right. But there seems, but there is this thing now where these people will will see, will seem to feel as if they're being intruded upon, and it's like, then don't come, <laughs> don't be here, and and take the opportunity to uh, you know make someone feel less about you. Keep keep the mystery in that case. Keep the mystery going. <laughs> see, yeah. You know, yeah. If you don't want to, if you don't want to deal with the crowds or, or deal with the the fans. Don't come. Simple as that. Precisely. I think yeah. eBay kind of changed the dynamic too, of uh, to a degree. I mean, yeah. I there's a little you know, bit, of the, a little yeah. bit of the kind of 
you know, and the fans, I think, and maybe their agents kind of push them this way to saying, you know, every third person is going to turn around and sell that on eBay. But I mean, my kind of feeling was always, I just always get them to personalize it, you know, if that figure that makes them feel a little, you know, just make it, make it to Troy, you know, and that makes it less likely that I'm going to turn around and, and sell it if that's your fear, you know, but. Well, I, yeah, but by, I, that, I don't, by that time, I, they still want the money. Well, true. And I, I don't think it's every third person. I would almost say it's every. Oh, no, I don't think so either. I'm just saying that maybe what they. they that's what they're being told. Maybe someone yeah. in his being right. to encourage. Well, that, see, that's that's exactly it. It's what the promoters or the managers right. are telling right. them, yeah. which yeah. if I'm a guest and my manager is telling me, well, they're just selling this stuff on eBay. I'm like, well, then that's depressing as hell that nobody's here actually wants to see me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, years ago, like in the 90s, I, we, we did these shows here locally that were basically just uh, movie memorabilia collector shows. And they would have they started having one or two guests and then it just went way out of proportion. But and I'll, I can't remember the guy, the actor's name, but the guy that played Ebb on Green Acres mm-hmm. sure, yeah. was going to be at the show and he was on the on the radio promoting it. And they asked him, so what, what do you, you know, charge for an autograph? And he said, I'd be tickled that people know who I am, but the promoter told me I got to charge because they're just going to sell it on eBay. And so I, I have to charge now. And you're sitting there going, you sons of bitches. Yeah, right. Yeah. Here's yeah. a guy. And again, it's a way for the promoter not to have to pay to get the guest there. They just pay their, their flight and their hotel and then whatever money yep. you make at the table, that's yours. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it, it's it's just a shame that I think we've lost the fandom where it's about making money as opposed to talking about the films and the and the people involved that we all love. That's that's the yeah. real shame. Yeah, and another another shame too is that some really good conventions became autograph cons, you know, uh, because mm-hmm. of too because yeah. of the whole culture yeah. too. So yeah, um, that's one of the reasons I still love Monster Bash because it's. While they do charge, it's it's nowhere near the absurdity of some of these other ones that I go to. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, it's true. Well, John, uh, I don't want to keep you too late tonight, mainly because you know I don't want to stay. I don't want to stay late either. World, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I did want to. I did want to bring up one last thing. It's uh, uh, from my understanding, uh, you're a podcaster these days too. Yeah, yeah. Um, we started in October of 2021. Uh, it's called obvious or uh, appropriately enough, discover the horror. Um, mm-hmm. and it's done with two friends of mine, Damien Glonick, who's one of the co-creators of living dead dolls. And then yeah, another friend, yeah. Aaron Abishan, who's a film professor or a associate Dean in St. Louis. Not really sure whose idea was to start this. I think when I was asked, I said, yeah, I'll, I can do that as soon as I get finished with, you know, everything else I'm doing. Um, which I guess they took as yes. Uh, so well, then, it's named after your book, you know. I would think. That, well, yeah. that honestly, that was not my idea. That was their idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but to that point, the whole goal of the podcast is to get people to watch films either that they hadn't seen, or uh-huh. that they have seen, but maybe watch them with a little bit more knowledge or, or a little differently. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think so far we've. We've, we've done that because we've had a lot of responses of people. Uh, we've talked about movies that a, people have never heard of mm-hmm. um, or ones that they've seen and thought were okay, then go back to and went, oh, okay, that's that's a lot better than I remembered. Hmm. Okay. So it's, it's, yeah. been, it's been fun. 
Yeah, bad, cool idea. That's uh, yeah, that's great. Well, I think Troy and I both can admit that to a large degree, some of the some of the reasons that we podcast about specific movies does uh, does dovetail with exactly what you're talking about. There, we're tr- we want to encourage. It's it's not just for people who've already seen the films necessarily, but if by talking about these movies, we can get people to get just a little bit more curious about them. That little that little nudge that gets them over the you know whatever speed bump may be in their way to just finally go ahead and push play on a particular movie. Um, if we can do that, that I don't know. That makes me feel great. If we if we manage to do that with you know like five or ten people uh, per episode, then I feel like it's a success because then we've gotten to the point where we're not just necessarily talking to people who already are fans of whatever the subject matter is. We're actually kind of bringing more people to the things that we love. That that's exactly the the point, and and it's the same thing that we were doing at Monster Bash where you're just having this conversation, but maybe with someone that's, again, going back to the analogy of down the same road, they're not at that certain point, and you start throwing titles there, and they're like, okay, wait a minute, hang on, this movie and this movie, and there is no better joy than seeing that person sometime later or getting an email and saying, holy crap, that movie blew me away. I cannot believe I hadn't seen that before. Oh yeah, so, these days it's you'll be in a conversation with someone and you'll start talking about different titles, and they'll pull out their phone and they start type they start typing the titles yeah. in, and it's like yeah. oh, okay, okay, hold on, so that what was that is that the full title? And I'm like, oh, okay, okay, we're we're paying attention here, aren't we? Now a, a funny story is a couple of years ago, um, a, a regular customer of mine at one show bought my book on Friday, mm-hmm. comes comes back to me on Saturday with just this look of like wide-eyed, like I can't freaking believe this. He saw this movie in the early 70s or the late 70s about a mud monster. Oh, with, yes. Oh, yeah. And I talk about it in my book because it was a pretty mm-hmm. big event when I when I saw that. He had been looking for the name of that movie for decades. <laughs> wow. And he goes, and here I start reading your book and within the first chapter, you mentioned that and he goes i have been looking for that forever and then i of course went well you know the cool thing is there's this dealer over here he has copies of that <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's one of those things when you can open that door to somebody yeah, yeah. it not only i don't want to say justifies what we're doing or just being a fan but it's like you're helping someone along that path and and that is so much fun Yes, yes. And that that is one of the things that podcasts like this are it's what we've been aiming to do from the first in the first place and it sounds like you're trying to do the same thing with Discover the Horror, which not the book and the podcast to be blunt, yeah. which is to to once again, it's that idea of fostering community, of bringing people together to discuss the things that we love, to find, you know, to talk about them, to to you know, why do you like that? Why do you not like that? Why is this? Why does this appeal to you more than that? What it, you know, it's it it gets down to you know that you, you could you could make fun of it and say things people where, where people are, are debating their fa- you know, who's your favorite monster you know you know something along those lines, but from such silliness does come larger discussions does come the 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 realizations of what these things represent outside of that screen and those are the things that i really love man because it's those conversations that are both just tons of fun and even if all you do is 
talk with people and understand eventually why someone likes something more or less than you and their reasons for it. And those are those are great conversations. I mean, because it, it, it casts those things in a different light for you each time as well. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that if, if you're having a conversation and, and Rod, you say you like Crimson and I go, oh, that movie sucks, whatever. And the conversation <laughs> ends. Ends, right. Then you're, you're not either one of them. You're not making any progress where if you went, you said that and I went, really, why? And you came up with, well, because of this, because of this could have been the one you saw it the first time. And we don't really have to go into Crimson because I don't think either one of us could defend that. But, <laughs> no, no, no. But it, it's one of those things that when you hear someone's opinion, even though it's about a film you might despise, hearing their reasons m- may make you think of something that you didn't see the first few times mm-hmm. or the first time. Or even if you still think it's a crap, yeah. you're going to understand their point of view. And it very well could be the first time they saw it. They saw it with their grandmother in the theater or, or whatever. So you yeah. can't you can't criticize that person's opinion because it's it's their opinion. And, and there's a lot of aspects that we're not going to have the same similarities to. So at least you can understand their reasoning behind it. And right. like you said, Rod, you can learn a lot more by just listening to someone's opinion. And you're going, holy shit, you know what? I, I never thought about that. Yeah. I mean, I have had my opinion on a film turned around or softened to a degree after a conversation with someone who earnestly defended it. Mm-hmm. And that's wonderful. And I think that there have been times in the past I may have done the same for other people where where I'm I'm explaining my reasoning for, for what I enjoyed in it. And that has opened their eyes to a different way of looking at it. And that, to me is one of the best things about uh, conventions. It's, 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 it's one of those things where you're al- you already know you're in a room of like-minded Looney Tunes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can start a conversation that begins, I'm not necessarily sure that Bride of Frankenstein is, is James Whale's best horror film. And you're going to have a conversation. Right. It's because of that room you're in. And by the way, I guarantee starting a conversation like that is going to make it an interesting conversation, <laughs> yeah. no matter what you do. <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say there, there's a, a film that, I mean, it's highly regarded as a, a great film, but to to the point of different opinions, the, the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. When I originally had seen that, and that terrified me when I was a kid, but it was obviously the, the concept was because of the whole McCarthyism, uh, the aliens are, um, Oh, that thought just went out the window that the, the aliens are coming in and they're trying, the McCarthyism is the humans and they're trying to, you know, save themselves. And then I was having a conversation with someone and he said, well, you know, Don Siegel's friends were blacklisted. So, His idea was the aliens are the communists. That's what it was, that the aliens are communists coming in. He was saying that the idea is that the aliens are McCarthyism, Hmm. that you can't think on your own and you can't do this on your own. And it's the same story, but all of a sudden you flip it around going, Hmm. holy shit. It, It literally works either way. And that's one of those things that it doesn't take away from the enjoyment of the film, but had I not had that conversation with someone, I, I, it never would have dawned on me. True, and it, 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 it that it is the getting those various various and sundry alternate perspectives 
that, I mean, it, it can make that. Well, I mean, for instance, there's an entire book talking about invasion of the body snatchers. There's an entire book filled with essays about people talking about various ways to interpret and think about that movie. That's mm-hmm. the kind of thing. I mean, I, I've joked for years that if, if we lived in the world that I want, there would be a BFI book on every single Paul Nashy film, maybe two, <laughs> maybe two of them, because I would want to get maybe two different, you know, 70 to 80 page perspectives on say, Night of the Werewolf <laughs> or Hunch or Hunchback of the Morgue. It's like, I really want to get really thoughtful, incisive looks and, and, and treatises on these stories and on these ideas. And, um, that see to me until until we live in that world, I'm going to be a little pissed off. So, well, and going back to the the original part of the conversation about reference books, that is one of the key elements of when you read about these films. Doors open, and and you start yeah. to see stuff differently. And going off a little subject, this isn't really Nashy, but um, I, I read a book of essays on Nigel Neal and his work, and yes. there was one on Quatermass in the Pit. And you talk about blowing the doors off. The the scene near the end of the film where Roni is in the dilapidated house with Quatermass, and Quatermass is fighting the impulses. Yeah. And, oh, the the yeah the Hobbs End place. Yeah. yeah. And Doctor Rooney's like, I I don't know what you're talking about. I I I'm not feeling anything. I don't I don't get it. Mm. Then the guy that was writing the essay was imp- not implying, but he's like, that's the mob mentality. And if you look at in today's society, what not to get really political, but when certain political people are are saying stuff that's not true and people are buying into that mm-hmm. while other people are sitting there going, I, I don't understand this. I don't you don't see this. And I'm reading this going, holy shit, Nigel Neal was writing about this shit in the 50s. And it's even more apparent true today. Oh, yeah. And of course, what he was referencing were, were, were political movements that he was seeing in the, the 20s, you know, between World War One and World War Two, the things right. that led to World War Two. That's what he was commenting specifically on, but using science fiction and horror to do it. So, so yeah. He, yeah, here's some, you know, low budget hammer film that's got monsters and stuff. And you're sitting there realizing going, wait a minute, there's something in here. <laughs> Holy cow. There's a lot in there. And that, that that's. That's part of the I, 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 fun is the wrong word, but it kind of it kind of does kind of boil down to it being fun to dig into a, a piece of fiction and to kind of watch it open like a flower. It's mm-hmm. great. Yeah. And you, you have a better understanding of the filmmakers as well, because uh, yeah. I'm, I'm a huge fan of low budget guys like Steckler and, and uh, Larry Buchanan. And y- if you watch their films without any knowledge of anything you're going to go, oh, my God, these are so cheaply made and, and they're not well made. But then you realize that, you know, Larry Buchanan had $8,000 and he got this film made. It played drive-ins and he made money. That's yeah. not a bad filmmaker. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, it, it may not be yeah. a good film, but he got it made. Exactly. He got a film exactly. made. Yeah. Yeah. So that reading more about these guys and not just the low budget, but even no matter what film it is. The more you read about them, you will learn to see it better. I don't want to say you're going to like it better, but you see a bigger picture. No pun intended. <laughs> John, 
I was going to say, you've you got the podcast and the book, both by the title of Discover the Horror. Now, you still have your, uh, you still have your column in Horror Hound, right? Um, still doing the column. Um, yeah, Corner, right? Uh, in, uh, uh, Kitley's Crypt or Kitley's Corner that you did in uh, the Horror Kittley's Hound? Corner. It's uh, the uh, review, Reviews from the Crypt, I think. There you go. There you go. Reviews from the Crypt, yeah. yeah, in Horror Hound magazine. And then you got to answer a question for me. Does... Is Evil Speak gone now? The magazine altogether? Is there going to be any more, or is that are they still? I uh, I can't answer that. I am I am not associated with that anymore. Okay, because I know you'd written oh, some okay. things for him before, and I just I just wondered. I had I, I I thought they were gone, and then I'd heard kind of a rumor there was going to be another one, and you know, uh, it, it, I was really enjoying that magazine for the brief time it was around because it really reminded me so much of the old fanzines, you know, from. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was the concept and it, and it was, it was fun. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I'm not involved with that anymore. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, John, uh, just wanted to say once again, thank you for coming on and here, come on, coming on here and talking to us about, uh, well, Paul Nashie. Uh, we do tend to range, as these conversations do, <laughs> all over a dozen different subjects. <laughs> but, Nothing wrong with that. No, and, that, and that's kind of what we were talking about there for about the past 20 minutes, is, which is, this is what happens. This is part of it. That's that's one of the things that makes these kinds of conversations magical. Yes, they do. And, and uh, yes, it's okay. It's okay, listeners, to hate John because he met John, met Paul Nashy, but... <laughs> Outside of that, you should definitely still seek out the man's writings and his podcast and everywhere he's he's because he's always always interesting. All the stuff he. Talks. I appreciate that. Thank you. Although when I see Very people true. walk by the table giving me the stink eye, I'm going to go. They listen to the show. <laughs> John, once again, thank you for coming on. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, man. All right, man. Just jumping in here real quick once again to say uh, if you have any comments, questions, or any uh, ideas of your own about Paul Nashie films, nashycast at gmail.com is the address to send them to. Thank you very much for participating, and I'm glad you listened to the show, at least all the way to the end here, because, man, we rambled all over the place. Once again, thanks to John Kitley for joining Troy and I. And uh, we hope that uh, you will join us as we continue the Nashicast on into the future. Bye now. Bye.